I know, I know none of you are going to believe me, so that's fine. But Your secret's safe with me. I'm not going to tell Tina. The man has been through it all now. 50, they've been married 50 years, so... He would, like, give me, like, tips on how to try to make my butt bigger. Oh, yes, because we are the best. Everybody! Nope, no way, not gonna do it, absolutely not, hells no. We've all been there, right? I'm Vanessa Cirillo, and this is the Valley Voices podcast from New England Public Media. The stories I've got for you today were recorded live at the Marigold Theater in East Hampton. The theme was nope, and the stories we heard that night were so, so good, including the three you're about to hear right now. Just a heads up, some of these stories might not be good for some listeners, so you might want to take a look around to see who's in the room with you. Maybe pop those earbuds in. First up, Jennifer Baker tells us about a visit from her parents and the compost that comes with it. It began with an onion. I used to live in Chicago until about July. My parents live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is four hours away. And so they would drive to visit me. And when they would drive to visit, they would bring everything. Like everything my mother thought would be interesting to me. A single hair tie, a crumpled up receipt from CVS for toothpaste, because you keep these things and um, also all the food that they were gonna eat while they stayed with us and anything that my mother was concerned about like might go bad in her refrigerator. So they arrive and there's like this endless procession of bags into my kitchen. And once those are all squared away, my mother and I are gonna go through all the things that are gonna enter my refrigerator. This is what my husband and I call grocery show and tell. So she's like, Panera leftovers, sweet potatoes from three nights ago, a pack of peas, one chickpea. And I'm like, okay, that's great, Mom. So we get through it. You know, my dad says nothing. We get through it. We're sitting at the table. And she goes, oh, I have one more thing to ask you about, which is not true because she has a 100 more things to ask me about. But I'm like, all right. She reaches into her purse, and she pulls out a single red onion. And she goes, do you want this? And I'm like, why did you buy an onion that you're not going to eat? And she goes, oh, I didn't. Lisa did. So Lisa's my little sister, and she lives in New Jersey. And we're in Chicago. And I'm like, Mom, why did you bring an onion from New Jersey to Michigan to Chicago to ask me if I wanted it? And she was like, I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to throw it away. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So... So I look at my dad, and he's like, poker face. This is not new. The man has been through it all now. 50, they've been married 50 years. So, um, so yeah, he just has like the longest, slowest fuse until he doesn't. So anyway, the next day, walk into the kitchen. I find my mother elbow deep in the garbage disposal. And I'm like, oh, my God. Apparently, my dad had cut the tops off strawberries so he could put them in his uh, cereal, which he does every morning. And she is not approving of how he has cut the berries. And so she's reaching in to retrieve them. And not only is she doing that, but she's re-trimming them and then eating the trimmings (laughs) and setting the stems aside. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) this is happening. So I'm like, mom, And she just looks up at me and goes, 
you and your father. And I'm like, what? Apparently we like share the gene for subpar berry trimming. So I, you know, immediately head down the long hallway to tell my husband that I found my mother in the garbage disposal and like, that's just fine. And also, again, my, my father said nothing. Um, scolding doesn't phase him. Okay, so I'm walking back to the kitchen and I pass, we have this long hallway, and I pass the room they're staying in and something catches my eye. And it's a pile of dirty tissues on the floor next to the garbage can. And I'm like, okay, ne next, not, not in, but next to, and I'm like, mom, what's the story with the tissues? Do, you know, like, can we throw them away? And she comes in and she's like, oh, I'm gonna take those home. And I'm like, you're gonna take dirty tissues back to Michigan? Like, we have garbage here. And she's like, I'm gonna compost them. And I'm like, all right, awesome. So, <laughs> again, my dad, no objections, not yet. Again, seen it before, I mean, I could go on and on. Anyway, so meanwhile, I noticed that in the kitchen, uh, a bag has showed up on the countertop and it's so we can start composting. And I love composting, I compost here. I was doing it in Chicago. It kind of drove my husband crazy because he didn't like the, like the container of rotting food on the counter. I get it, I put it outside, a squirrel got it. I didn't do it anymore. But my mother's here and she needs this, so we're doing it. She needs to supervise the cleanup of all meals and all food that makes its way in and out of rooms in our house. So that means that after every meal, my father in particular like dutifully brings her the dishes and she takes a quarter sheet of paper towel and after putting the food scraps in the compost container then wipes it down, puts the paper towel, because you can also compost that, and then allows my father to wash the dishes. And he inevitably screws up and then she's like, just give it to me and get out of here, you're so unhelpful. And then he'll just, you know, kind of turn and walk away and so, fast forward, it's time for them to go home. And now, we have to do grocery show and tell in reverse. So, here come the questions. Jenny, what about the almond milk? Do you want it? I don't. What about the lactate milk? I don't want it. What about that one cherry tomato from Trader Joe's? It's rotting. What about the eighth of a bagel crust your daughter didn't eat last night? No. What about the teaspoon of mayonnaise? I'm like, oh, mom. And I'm like really trying to keep my cool, but I don't know how to tell her that I don't want any of this food because it's gonna like break her heart. So I'm trying to keep it together, but you know who isn't keeping it together anymore is my father, Milt, who is now like pacing the room and is getting agitated. And I'm like, this is very interesting. So we're, you know, we're getting through it, but he's like, we gotta go. We, we gotta, look, can, can we go, can we go? Like, let's go. Grocery show and tell cannot be abbreviated, however, so we're gonna see it through. This train is going. And I, but we're in the home stretch, and I'm like, all right, we're, gonna, we're, we're both gonna make it, me and him. And then she hits me and him with the hammer. She goes, Jenny, what about the compost? And I'm like, I'll just take it you know, to the store where the farm picks it up. And she goes, well, we could take it home. And before I can say, do you really want to carry a box of rotting food in your car for four hours, my dad erupts. And he goes, no, 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 we're not driving the garbage back to Michigan. 
slams the door. And you know what? They did. That was Jennifer Baker. Jennifer loves how much her father loves her mother and how much her mother loves compost. All right, our next story comes from Chaya Grossberg, who found that saying nope to the wrong guy can be excellent physical therapy. So I met Bert at a party in Olympia, and he asked me if I wanted to go upstairs and cuddle. Um, so, you know, I was a little isolated when I lived in Olympia, and, and I ended up hooking up with this guy. He actually reached out to me a couple days later and asked me if I wanted to go to a yoga class, but I, I didn't want to go to a yoga class with him. I actually just wanted him to come over, so I invited him over, and we hooked up, and then I didn't, I didn't hear from him for like a week or two, and, and I didn't really know why. Although, you know, I didn't, I didn't really like this guy that much. Like, he was a little bit of an over-talker. It was kind of hard to get rid of him sometimes. And, um, but I was, like, wildly attracted to him. And I was 37. So, um, but then, so, so meanwhile, that week, I had two injuries. One of them was that I was walking in my neighborhood and just fell and injured my hands. I don't, I don't know how it happened, but... Um, And then, like, the same day, I had a huge mug, and I dropped it on my big toe, and it, it, like, my big toe blew up into a big blood blister. Um, And it was super, super painful. So I was in pain all day. And then my friend, who had actually hosted that party and who this guy, Bert, lived with, um, offered to come over and give me some CBD oil for the pain. So... I, you know, my, my toe hurt so much that I couldn't drive, I couldn't do anything. I'd been in excruciating pain all day, so I accepted this offer. I didn't know if the CBD oil would help or not, but I figured maybe it would put me to sleep or something. So I tried it, and then as soon as, <laughs> shortly after my friend left, having given me this supposedly CBD-only oil, I um, started to hallucinate, and I was like lying in bed just trying to fall asleep and I started to feel really paranoid and like I was seeing weird visuals and I was, I was definitely tripping. So I called my friend um, and he didn't really know what to tell me, but he put me on the phone with Bert who was living, who was living with him, who had been in the bathtub. And, um, <laughs> and so there I was in this very unfiltered state, you know, I had hooked up with this guy, he hadn't called me or anything, and I, but I was like pining for him. I really wanted, really wanted to have sex with this guy. And um, so, I, so I told him that, you know, because I was, I, I was no filter. I, I just started telling him <laughs> how I felt. And, um, and he offered to come over and have sex with me right then and there, actually. <laughs> But I was like, you know, I'm, I'm tripping right now. Like, I've been in excruciating pain all day. Um, I just didn't think it was a good idea. But the other thing was that I wasn't really sure if I should have sex with this guy because I looked him up, and he had a history of sexually assaulting people he had been a professional massage therapist for. And I asked a friend of mine about him, and he was like, this guy is bad news. Not, don't, don't, don't go near this person <laughs> But for some reason, I still felt like I needed to. And um, <laughs> so um, 
And this blood blister wasn't going away. I went to urgent care, and, and they gave me oral antibiotics for this blood blister on my toe, and I was like, how could that possibly work or help? But I was just so desperate that I took them anyway, and they didn't do anything, and they gave me one of those big like booties for my foot, and that just made it even harder to walk and hurt my toe even more, but it didn't do anything. So I finally realized, which I know, I know none of you are going to believe me, so that's fine, but I realized that I needed to have sex with Bert and that that would somehow resolve this situation. <laughs> I, just, I just knew I had to, and, and it doesn't make sense. I know there's no logic in that, but it was true because once I had sex with him, the very next day, my friend drove me to the ER and they popped a blood blister. That was that, you know? But... Um, I still, had these, I still had this injury on my hands because I had fallen and I was actually writing my book at that time. So, and it was like, then it was hard for me to finish my book and I was in physical therapy. And then I was in this like fling with this guy, Bert, who like wouldn't stop talking. He was anti-Semitic. He thought my butt wasn't big enough. And he would like give me like tips on how to try to make my butt bigger. Um, and he was really into this woman Laura with the big butt, who, <laughs> who was also Jewish and Israeli, actually. Um, and so anyways, then he, he ended up having to go across the country. So we were, you know, having a lot of sex, but like not liking each other. And, you know, I was like always trying to figure out how to get him out as quickly as possible of my, of my apartment. But he wouldn't stop talking. So anyway, um, he went across the country to visit his family and... I was pining for him the whole time, but also like, what am I doing, you know? And then I basically didn't hear from him for weeks, maybe a month or more. And then finally he came back and told me that he was gonna start dating Laura with the big butt. Um, but that he would have um, closure sex with me if, if I was interested in that. <laughs> so I, I accepted that offer. <laughs> And then, um, and then, you know, let him go on his way to have, to have a little fling with Laura with the big butt. And then, but right after that, my hands completely healed. I no longer needed to go to physical therapy. And I finished writing my book later that year. That was Haya Grossberg. Haya's lived in many places, East Hampton being her favorite, and Olympia, her least favorite. This is the Valley Voices podcast from New England Public Media. I'm Vanessa Cirillo, and I've got one more story for you today. But before we go back to high school with Paul McNeil, a quick note for all you storytelling fans. If listening has got you thinking of great stories from your own life, I'm here to tell you, yes, we want to hear it all. Our Valley Voices Story Slams bring all kinds of stories to the stage and the podcast. Find out how to audition, watch our video shorts, and get tickets to our next show at nepm.org slash valleyvoices. Okay, for our last story, Paul McNeil goes to great lengths to make sure his prom date doesn't know where he lives. At some point... When I was really young, I started to care a lot, a lot, a lot about people not seeing me as poor or poorly behaved or from a dysfunctional family 
or from a house that was falling apart. And I had a really great opportunity to change that narrative for myself when I went to a new high school. So I w went from a small town in Spencer, Mass, central Massachusetts. It's 20 minutes west of Worcester, near Ragsdale Chevrolet. And uh, I went to school in Worcester, big city, huge high school, 1,100 kids. And my buddy Sean and I were the only kids from Spencer that went there. And I was friends with them my whole childhood. And it was a great chance to, for me to sort of pretend to be someone else that I wanted to be. And I got to sort of change people's opinion of who I was and where I was from without them really knowing the truth. And so I showed up and I thought, I'm going to be funny. I'm going to be cool. I don't care about being smart yet. Um, and my big way of sort of coming out and coming out of my shell and showing this facade was the big basketball games where they would pack the gym with like 2,500 people. And I would show up head to toe with the school's colors. So there was baby blue, black. I'd paint my face. And Sean would do the same thing. And we would go nuts at the game and just lead as many cheers as we could. We'd be screaming the whole time. We would just kind of be out of control. And people loved it, and they ate it up, and they, they really sort of egged us on. And it was a good part of these basketball games. And we actually ended up catching the eye of the two captains of the actual cheerleading squad, Tracy and Tina. And Tina was kind of tiny, tiny Tina. And she was the one that did all the backflips, and like she was the one that got tossed in the air. And Tracy was strong and was the one who would hold Tina up. And they were a really cool pair, really good people, very friendly. But they started to check in with us and be like, hey, do you guys want to like help us at timeouts? We can lead these cheers together, um, which was super fun. And I felt very seen, and I felt honored to help them out and be a part of that, the cheering that they did. Um, let's see. H-O-L-Y-N-A-M-E-N-A-P-S, oh yes, because we are the best. <laughs> Everybody. Holy name Naps. It's not funny, it's our mascot. The, the Naps is short for Napoleons. I know, I know. I don't know, but I know. And I would cheer, and we were a good team, and we, we really connected. And Tina and I started to become good buddies. Toward the end of the basketball season, it was pretty late after a game, and I did not have a ride home, and Spencer was 30 minutes away, and Tracy and Tina offered to drive Sean and I back to Spencer. I was super pumped, feeling a little nervous, because my town was a dumpy town. I lived in a, you know, aforementioned pretty dumpy house, and I was sort of nervous I was gonna be seen, I was gonna be exposed. And so we drive that drive to Spencer in Tracy's like very new, very nice Volkswagen Jetta, and in the 1990s, that's, as, that's about as sweet a car as you can drive. And that seemingly four-hour trip to Spencer, just like smothered and sweating and nerves, uh, we finally get to 7 High Street in Spencer, and a huge wave of embarrassment sort of washes over me. And I get out of the car, and, and Sean gets out, and, and we give each other a glance. And I begin to walk toward the house, and I turn around and I wave to Tracy and Tina, and I just feel, I feel like awful inside. And it's because I don't live at 7 High Street in Spencer, Massachusetts. 
I live at 93 Chestnut Street. Who does live at 7 High Street is Richard Sagendorf, the wealthiest man in Spencer, who owns a 7,400 square foot Victorian mansion with the whole Rapunzel tower on the corner and nine bedrooms, four bath. And so Sean knew exactly what I was doing. And so he followed suit. We walked toward the house and swiftly around it to the side. Um, and as the, the headlights receded away, whew. The next day, Tracy comes up to me and sort of whispers to me, hey, Paul, I know that wasn't your house. I had to tell my parents where I was going. I looked you up in the directory. You don't live there. Your secret's safe with me. I'm not going to tell Tina. Whew. So Tracy is very cool to this day. And I really appreciated that. A couple weeks later, junior prom is coming. And Tina invites me to the junior prom. Big deal for me. I'm 14. I'm not good looking yet. <laughs> and I have to go to the thrift store to pick up a used tuxedo because I don't have enough money to buy like a real tuxedo. And I'm looking real good. And Tina's parents want to host us before the prom to take some pictures. Sean's mom drives both of us to Tina's house in Grafton, Massachusetts. And it's a long drive and we're approaching her house and that same exact wave of embarrassment sort of just washes over me. And it's because Tina had like the exact same house that I actually had. It was beat up, it was on a rough part of town, um, but it was actually her house. She was not hiding it. On the way to prom after the photos, I talked with Tina, I totally came clean, told her the truth. She immediately laughed and said she did not care. And she said she didn't care if I was rich or poor, she just wanted me to be kind. And the good news about that is that I was always kind to Tina before and after that. Um, I just, after that night, after prom, when she cut my steak, because I'd never eaten a steak and never cut a steak before, <laughs> uh, I wasn't just kind, I was actually me. Thank you. That was Paul McNeil. Paul lives with two monsters and his wife in East Hampton. That's it for this episode of the Valley Voices podcast. We'll be back with new stories in a few weeks, so be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a thing. Keep up beyond your podcast feed by joining our Facebook group, Valley Storytelling Community, or send us a note at valleyvoices at nepm.org, and we'll add you to our mailing list. Valley Voices Story Slam is produced by New England Public Media and the Academy of Music. Huge thanks to the folks at the Marigold Theater who hosted this show and make a damn good cocktail, I might add. This show is produced by Katie Wright for New England Public Media. You want to say anything, Katie? Nope. I'm Vanessa Cirillo. See you next time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.